the devastation of Gaza and its people continues. Around the world, protests also continue. Week after week, people call on their leaders and lawmakers to use any tools they have to end the violence and ensure no more innocent lives are lost. Protests calling for an end to the bloodshed have also been witnessed in Israel. As these protests have persisted, the civil rights of Israelis and their ability to protest against government policy has decreased. This week, we look at the shrinking civil rights of Israelis, the role that the Supreme Court is playing, and how Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facilitating this change. My name is Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. We will start with an update on the situation in Gaza. The civilian death toll in Gaza now exceeds 26,000, while the number of injured is 64,000, according to a report released on January 26th by the Ministry of Health. In a particularly shocking attack on January 25th, at least 12 were killed and a further 75 were injured, when a UN facility sheltering thousands of civilians in the southern city of Khan Yunus was hit by Israeli fire. On January 25th, Israeli soldiers opened fire on a crowd of civilians in Gaza City who were waiting to collect humanitarian aid. It was reported that at least 20 were killed and dozens more wounded. This week, the World Bank released a report on the damages suffered in Gaza. Based on satellite images and media accounts, their findings showed that 45% of Gaza's residential buildings have been destroyed and damaged beyond repair. The World Bank calculated that the destruction has left 1,076,619 Gazans without a home. The biggest story of the week happened on January 26th. Keen listeners will remember our episode from a couple of weeks back looking at South Africa's genocide filing at the International Court of Justice at The Hague in the Netherlands. After some deliberation, they have returned a verdict on the provisional measures. For these reasons, the court indicates the following provisional measures. One, by 15 votes to two, the State of Israel shall in accordance with its obligations under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in relation to the Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention, in particular, A, killing members of the group, B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. The provisional measures stopped short of calling for a ceasefire, but did insist that Israel does everything in its power to prevent genocide or genocidal actions. The courts continued. The State of Israel shall take all measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. 
The top international court also reminded Israel of its obligations to ensure humanitarian aid is allowed to pass. 16 votes to 1, the state of Israel shall take immediate and effective measures to ensure the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to address the adverse conditions of life faced by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Outside the court, South Africa's International Relations Minister, Naledi Pandor, spoke to the press. I would have wanted that the word cessation uh, is included uh, in the judgment, but I am satisfied with the directives that have been given. She added, I believe that uh, in exercising uh, the uh, order, there would have to be a ceasefire. Without it, the order uh, doesn't actually work. Even since the early days of the war in Gaza, calls for a ceasefire have also come from Israel. These calls have not been welcomed by the government, the state and even other Israeli citizens. To help us understand the state of civil rights in Israel, I spoke with Eyal Luri Pradesh. I'm a visiting fellow at the Middle East Institute, which is the oldest think tank in D.C. dedicated to Middle East policy. I'm originally from Jerusalem, Israel, where I focus on policy and legal advocacy. Among other things, I work for the legal department of the Association for Civil Rights in Israel. I was a parliamentary advisor for former member of Knesset Michal Ruzin, and I was a policy coordinator for Zulat Institute for Civil Rights. To understand where we're going, it's good to know where we came from. I started by asking Yal what right to protest did Israelis have prior to the war in Gaza. Up to October 7th, if we are talking historically, Israeli citizens generally enjoy substantial protections of the right to protest. Freedom of expression has been largely protected by the Supreme Court since the early 1950s, which is a few years after Israel's establishment. And in recent years, amid the growing protest movement against Netanyahu, some of these constitutional protections have been actually bolstered by the Supreme Court. Relaxing some of the requirements and restrictions Police departments could impose over protesters to approve their demonstrations. For example, protesters can now, at least in small numbers, protest without even applying for a license. Um, During the peak of COVID pandemic, the court has struck down restrictions limiting demonstration, mandating the government and the police to approve them. But of course, the reality on the ground is much different. The police could be very hostile to protesters especially if they come from minority groups such as Palestinians. The police official guidelines allow much discretion for the commanders on the ground to use oppressive riot control measures, such as skunk water or shock grenades. And on top of that, there is a long history of the police quickly designating Palestinian-led protests as illegal riots rather than legal political demonstrations. Obviously, Netanyahu... Prime Minister, has, a, let's say, a spicy relationship with Israel's Supreme Court, I think is an undelicate way to say it. Um, what was What is the state of currently today? What is the state of the relationship between Netanyahu and the Supreme Court? It's a def- definitely a story of it's a complicated relationship. Um, I'll try to briefly explain it. It's hard to imagine today, I think, for most people, but only four months ago, 
the entire political discourse in Israel and about Israel was consumed by a battle over the Israeli checks and balances system. After Netanyahu won the 2022 elections, he founded the most right-wing coalition Israel has ever had. Soon after the establishment of the government, the Minister of Justice, Yeriv Levine, presented a plan to reform, quote-unquote, the judiciary. This plan included politicizing the nomination process of justices, creating an authority for the Knesset to override Supreme Court decisions, weakening the independent legal advisory mechanisms in different governmental government ministries, and stripping the court of its authority to practice judicial review of government governmental acts by using the reasonableness clause. The judicial overhaul plan was a long time coming for many in the right-wing policy world, including Netanyahu, who viewed the Supreme Court as a hyper-interventionist institution. According to them, the court has been composed by a liberal majority that prevented the political conservative majority in the government and in the Knesset to implement its agenda. On issues such as expanding settlements in the West Bank, exempting ultra-Orthodox from uh, mandatory military service, and limiting the rights of Palestinians, women, or the LGBTQ community. In response to this plan, the Israeli civil society organized in large numbers to block it. For almost a year, every week, hundreds of thousands of Israelis came out to the street to protest against the judicial overhaul in what many saw as the final battle for the Israeli democracy. And they also saw a striking connection between the advancement of this plan and the trial charges uh, that Netanyahu faced in court for corruption. The judicial overhaul plan received a lot of pushback from the legal community. The chief justice at the time, Stel Chayut, publicly addressed the plan, raising the alarm that it risked the democratic foundations of Israel. This is a very rare public statement on the side of a Supreme Court justice, yet alone the chief justice herself. And that even increased further the clashes between the government, the Supreme Court, and the chief justice especially. You mentioned earlier how you know the, the Israeli police have been known to uh, use aggressive tactics when, when going out to deal with protests, and how even since COVID times, the the right to protest and, and the is the ability of Israelis to protest has been limited. Um, what other measures have the police been granted, either through the state or through Israel's Supreme Court? What powers have they been granted that they wouldn't normally have been granted during peacetime? How have these been justified? And do they uh, is it just limited to? who is allowed to protest and when they're allowed to protest? Or have they been expanded? Those sort of permissions have been expanded beyond the protest space. The Israeli legal system allows many constitutional claims to be brought directly to the Supreme Court. This is a very rare thing worldwide. Because of it, many urgent legal questions regarding war-related civil rights violation have already been addressed by the court very rapidly because we are only in a, in, a, in a spectrum of four months here. But in order to understand the court's decision, I think that we first need to take a step back. Israel is currently in the aftermath of the Hamas terror attack on October 7th, and it's a country in the midst of dealing with the national trauma. Even today, if you open the news, 
every single piece in the news is somewhat related to October 7th or to the war in Gaza. The public sentiment definitely penetrated the court. It makes some sense. The justices do not live in a neutral third country, but have close connections to people and families that were impacted by the Hamas attack or by the ongoing war. As in many constitutional courts around the world, the Israeli Supreme Court uses a balancing formula when determining whether a certain governmental act is constitutional or not. In other words, the court must decide whether a government action, even if in some way could be justified for a compelling reason, disproportionately violates protected constitutional right at stake. That's the balancing test that they are dealing with when they have an appeal to the court, a petition. What we have seen in the weeks after October 7th is that the court puts much more weight on the security concern raised by the government in that balancing formula. The justice's opinion went way beyond merely describing the national security reasoning presented by the government and including semi-biblically inspired description of what happened on October 7 when it describing that interest. After such an apocalyptic description of the national security interests, it is very, very hard for civil rights advocates to convince the court that constitutional protection should triumph. Most notably, despite this constitutional protection given to political demonstration, the court allowed the police to effectively ban protest against the war in Gaza and Palestinian cities, such as Umm al-Fahim and Sakhnin, mostly in the first two months after October 7th. We can definitely see that these measures have gone way further than just the right to protest, especially in the first weeks of, um, um, after October 7th and during the beginning of the war in Gaza, the police attack any type of pro-Palestinian speech. These limitations prevented the Arab parties, those who are represented in the Israeli Knesset, the parliament, to hold conferences about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza or to publicly advocate for a ceasefire. The police even threatened to close down and shut down venues who would allow for such event to take place. On the side of the Supreme Court, this emphasis on the national security consideration has led civil rights advocates to lose systematically in other critical constitutional cases. Another troubling example, another field of law that has been very much impacted by that is rights of prisoners, especially prisoners who are charged with security felonies. The court denied petitions requiring the Israel prison service to release information of new detainees related to the Hamas attack. This is very important information to allow um, represent, legal representation or to notify their family of their whereabouts. The court denied petitions requiring the Israel prison service to release information of new detainees related to the Hamas attack. This is very critical for their legal representation or for the notification to notify their family of their whereabouts. Again, we're talking about a well-recognized constitutional right that has been long rooted in Israeli Supreme Court precedents. In the past, the court has been very liberal to protect the rights of prisoners of all kinds. For example, it blocked an initiative to allow private prisons to enter Israel for the first time in 2009, and it mandated the government to increase the minimum living space for prisoners 
But these presidents, who are overall very protective of prisoners, seem to have been put aside for the time of the war. So we can definitely see that the impact of the war is far broader than just impacting the right to protest. Do these feel temporary? Or do they feel temporary moving with a worrying sense that they're going to become permanent? These measures are currently justified by the government on a temporary basis, saying that because of the time of the war, because of the quantity of the prisoners that entered the system, or because of the capacity that the police need um, to answer of events that are happening all across Israel, that they cannot exactly um, protect the, the constitutional right in the same way that they would do in a, on a routine basis. But it is very... It's, but I think that it's very important to remember that like many other places around the world and in Israel included, it is very easy to implement a new restrictive policy. It is very hard to backtrack from it. The, the U.S. has passed the Patriot Act in the weeks after 9-11. The Patriot Act is still with us today. And it's very hard to backtrack after you pass such a thing. I think that after the Israel prison service would be accustomed to infringe uh, infringe and the uh, detainees' rights, I'm not sure that it, it will take better take it will take a better care of them in the future. Yeah, it is a, it's very concerning. I think um, you know we, you mentioned earlier about how Netanyahu and the Supreme Court had had their long running. Uh, disagreements about judicial overview and and and, and his uh, particular issues uh, with the law and his uh, legal troubles would we say that these both the judicial overview and even maybe also Netanyahu's legal troubles have now fallen to the wayside uh, maybe not to be returned since since October 7th and has, you know, there's been, there was a lot of criticism about the way that Netanyahu, his government, handled both the initial attack, any intelligence being handed to the government in the lead up to the attack on October 7th. Has his handling of the war in Gaza won over any of the Supreme Courts who think, actually, now, you know what, let's give him a break. Let's Netanyahu's done the best he can. He's all right by me. I am... <clears throat> All of these are very extremely important questions. And um, also we need to take them down one, one bit after the other. So in, in larger, to the larger extent, I, I'm definitely convinced the Supreme Court has not been won over by Netanyahu and is still very critical of Netanyahu. In early January, a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court issued a ruling in a consequential case regarding the main component of the judicial overhaul the government has managed to pass before the war. The court has struck down what is known as the reasonableness amendment that aimed again at stripping the court of one of the main methods to oversee government acts. This is the closest thing you can imagine to a constitutional bombshell. The Israeli Supreme Court recognized for the first time in history during the war that it has authority to strike down basic laws, which are the Israeli equivalent of the constitutional text, the constitutional amendment. By doing so, the court basically struck down the only component of the judicial overhaul 
that the government has managed to pass. But now, because of the war that's going on in Gaza, and after Israel suffered the most egregious military failure in the country's history under the leadership of Netanyahu, it is very hard to imagine that Netanyahu would manage to reassemble a majority needed to proceed with the judicial overhaul attempts. However, Netanyahu is a very smart and patient politician. Even if everything is put aside to the currently, he has personal interests in promoting these institutional changes in the future to help himself in his own trials where he's facing charges of corruption. Therefore, even though there are currently no measure of the judicial overhaul at play, it is far from being the last word on that end. But so far, it seems the Supreme Court has been managed to block every current attempt so far by the Netanyahu government to change the institutional checks and balances. We've seen protests in Israel, in the West Bank, in occupied parts of the West Bank, um, against the war. Um, I think t- so t- two parts to this. How have the anti-war slash ceasefire protests been met by the police? And then how has the response of the police differed between uh, Israeli and Jewish Israeli-led protests and either Palestinian or Arab Israeli-led protests? And so, and additionally, has there been, is there been, have they been treated differently between the ceasefire protests who say, we want to stop the war, and then the mm-hmm. protests that are more explicitly saying, we want to see the return of the hostages? Hmm. All very good questions. I want to add even another level of complexity to what you just, to, to the differentiation between Jewish demonstration, Jewish Arab demonstrations, and Arab demonstration, Palestinian demonstrations. Another layer that I think that is important for listeners to comprehend is that although the police in Israel is a national institution, there are differences in the policies implemented on the district level. The police districts in the north, especially in Haifa and in Sakhnin, in the area where a lot of Palestinians live, and in Jerusalem, have been historically and currently much more aggressive than the um, district in Tel Aviv or the center of Israel. For example, in Jerusalem, there have been real brutality, violent, um, um, violence by policemen arresting protesters who held small peaceful demonstration in certain cities, in the center city, um, without any apparent legal justification. And these protesters were overwhelmingly Jewish. It is true that there is a differentiation in how the police is treating different types of protesters, though. Palestinian-led demonstration, as we've seen in the case in October, could have been banned by the police without the intervention of the court. But in recent two months, after intervention by the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, who appealed to the Supreme Court twice, a Jewish-Palestinian demonstration for a ceasefire um, was granted a permission to, to be held, both in Tel Aviv and in other places in the country. 
So we do see, first of all, that differentiation between the Palestinian-led protests and the Jewish-Palestinian protests. And definitely a more Jewish protest, such as the one calling, just calling for the return of the hostages, have been granted permission throughout the duration of the war so far. It's, it is also important to understand that in Israeli discourse right now, the families of the hostages are being hogged by the Israeli media and the Israeli narrative. And I think that it would be very unwise politically for the police to not allow them um, to hold their protests, which is a very important protest as well. Obviously, we're seeing the, the restriction uh, that have been uh, implemented during this time of war. We spoke, you mentioned earlier about how it is once these these policies go into into onto paper and into society, pulling back them from them and and taking taking them uh, taking those powers away is difficult. I mean, is this a concern of the population? I mean, it's all very well all very well us talking about it, but is this a concern of Israelis in Jerusalem of? Israelis in Haifa, you know, Israelis in Tel Aviv, is this a concern of them? Are people concerned about this sort of creeping authoritarianism, I think? Maybe there's a strong word, but... I don't don't think authoritarianism is a strong word when we're discussing generally the anti-democratic trend in Israel under Netanyahu in recent years. I wish we had a poll to better answer what you just asked me. And generally speaking, I think that we need to differentiate between Jewish Israelis, that I think that what you really ask here, and Palestinian citizens of Israel who are a fifth of the population. On the Jewish-Israeli side, I think that they are very rarely impacted directly by the more restrictive measures passed by the government recently. Definitely what happened before October 7 with the judicial overhaul that shook the entire political Jewish-Israeli political discourse. But when we talk about the restricting and demonstrations, that was mostly targeting for two Palestinians. And the Jewish-Palestinian demonstration represent a fraction of the Jewish population in Israel. So for the larger extent, the Jewish-Israelis, I think their main concern is more related to the national trauma from October 7th and the ongoing war in Gaza. There will be anger and mistrust um, against the government, and especially Netanyahu. Even his followers in recent years have turned against him in, in large numbers. But they're related not to the restriction of civil rights, but more of the government dysfunction in the aftermath of the attack to really give some sort of answer to the people who are evacuated from the territories in the south and the north giving them some sort of a welfare backup or um, anger for a demand to bring back the 136 hostages that's still held by Hamas in violation of international law. So I don't really think that this kind of authoritarianism um, measures that we have seen the government passing in recent months have actually impacted how Jewish Israelis feel um, about their own safety and about their own definition of Israel as a democracy or its democratic foundations. It is definitely a different story for Palestinian citizens of Israel. To begin with, as we said, they, are, they have very low trust in the government and in the police. And that mistrust has been even 
deepening since Itamar Ben-Gvir, maybe the most prominent Jewish supremacist figure in Israeli politics, was nominated to the position of Minister of National Security that oversees the Israeli police in the current Netanyahu government. The different measures that limit freedom of expression of pro-Palestinian speech undoubtedly created a chilling effect. Pictures of Palestinian citizens being arrested in large numbers for online for speech they made online and that was deemed as incitement by the police were all over the news, especially in the first few weeks after October 7th. And in many ways, I think that for Palestinian citizens of Israel, it blurs the line between how Israeli authorities treat Palestinians in the West Bank who are under a military regime, how Palestinians um, if the residents of East Jerusalem feel like, and how Palestinian citizens of Israel feel like under the same type of surveillance and limitation of their freedom of expression. So I think that it's very understandable that a Palestinian would have concern, much concern, of the latest measures passed by the government and by the Knesset. For the you know, for Jewish Israelis, you, know, you say that they're more concerned about government dysfunction. Are they, um, and yeah, I think you quite rightly point out that these measures will much more greatly impact Arab Israelis, Palestinian Israelis. Is this the case of they just don't notice them? or that they're not concerned? Or is it a bit of both? It's a mixture. Again, I, I wish I had a poll that I could better I could better answer a question. But uh, according to what I see in presenting the media, I think that the story is even more complicated. I think that for Jewish Israelis, it's not just that they are apathetic to these new measures, authoritarianism-like authoritarian -like measures, is that they're actually, a lot of them support it. They believe that maybe these measures could be helpful in preventing the next terror attack. They, in favor of giving the security establishment more tools to tackle terrorism, they would be in favor of limiting the space for speech and civil rights in the illusion that it might help their security in the future. Again, this is very similar notions that we see in Israel public and atmosphere as one the one we saw in the UK and the US after 9-11. In that time where there's national trauma, people are okay with much wider and broader um, authoritarian-like or um, restrictions for civil rights in order to, to, give, to allow themselves to feel secure again where they are. Definitely, because it's not impacting them, especially as Jewish Israelis, they are less inclined to see how it could impact their colleague at work or Palestinian citizens of Israel or Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem. We talked quite a bit today you know, about Israel's Supreme Court. Would we say that Israel's Supreme Court is still the institutional check that it was, that is that it's supposed to be and designed to be? I think that, again, we should probably take a step back and mostly ask if the Israeli Supreme Court has ever been that institutional check. Theoretically speaking, the government in Israel is relying on the trust of the majority of the parliament of the Knesset in order to establish itself. 
But throughout the years, instead of that being a tool for the Knesset to oversee the government and restrict its power, the exact opposite happened. The parties in government used, used the Knesset members as disciplined proxies. The Knesset had become in many ways a procedural signature for the government without any much of critical thinking on their behalf. And in that void, the Supreme Court became the only institution who could hold the government and the Knesset accountable. And indeed, many of the fundamental civil rights protection that have been, grant, have been granted by the Supreme Court rulings rather than by legislation. This includes protection for freedom of expression, LGBTQ plus rights, gender equality, and also some protection for Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territories. However, at least on the Palestinian end of things, these victories are largely, largely outweighed by the court's failure to protect Palestinian civil rights, especially those who live in the West Bank. Civil rights group long have been very critical of the court's role in legitimizing the Israeli legal action in the occupation in the West Bank and allowing the establishment and the expansion of the settlements in the West Bank to enormous proportion. Furthermore, the court has also failed to protect Palestinian citizens of Israel and allow the government to systematically discriminate against them in many aspects of life. All this is to say, in the context of protecting the rights of Palestinians, the Supreme Court track record as an institutional check has been very flaw flawed to say the least. Adding to that, its inability to more broadly defend citizens from government abuse during this time of war, it seemed that the Supreme Court is far from being the institutional check it was supposed to be. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis, and opinion from the region. Music